Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oates. Glad that you could tune in to us this morning to talk about cooperatives and the benefits of cooperatives. You know, I had a pleasure last night, about the fourth time that I've gone to the Cooperative Hall of Fame dinner. Um, the Cooperative Hall of Fame tells the story of the U.S. cooperative community through the lives and accomplishments of extraordinary people. Induction to the Corporate Hall of Fame is reserved for those who have made generally historic contributions to the cooperative community. And last night, three people were inducted to the Co-op Hall of Fame. And, you know, you just have to be there to feel the excitement, the enthusiasm. They create a video for each of the persons. It was also interesting that Dennis Bowling was more, more in agriculture and education Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimhard was in worker cooperatives in creating a book called Collective Carriage. And in that book, she looked at the history of African-Americans. And she's been on a program a couple of times talking about some of the things that she learned. First off, she didn't think there was much of a history, and she's told that it wasn't. But she uncovered there's a vast amount of history of African-Americans in this cooperative movement in the U.S. And then Dennis Johnson started out in banking and ended up, creating 110 senior citizen housing cooperatives up in Milwaukee and Iowa. So it was just fascinating. It was wonderful. It was enthusiastic just listening to. And Dr. Gordon Nimhard had her family, her father, 95 years old, was there. I think I'm saying it right, 95. It could have been 85, but it's older gentleman. Her children and aunt and grandchildren and it was just wonderful. And she started crying when she was called up, just tears of joy. I wish you could have been there to look at and listen to people that have devoted their lives and made major historic contributions to this cooperative movement. We are doing this program so that we can tell others about this cooperative movement because the history, as Dr. Nimhard found out, was lost, uh, hidden, perhaps consciously from some or or not. But she was able to uncover a lot and then put that in a book called Collective Courage. If you want a good read about history and blacks in history and blacks in business, I would suggest that you may want to get a copy of that book. Just quite, 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 quite interesting conversations about blacks in this whole cooperative movement. Cooperative, what, is, what are they? You know, um, uh, how are they like or dislike the capitalistic model? Um, Donald Trump is the epiphany of uh, a capitalist. 
talking about how much money his father left him and how he has been able to grow that money to be a billionaire, and maybe billionaire over. We don't think anybody really knows. He says a lot of different things about what his worth is, but in this capitalistic model, that's the goal. Take something and then expand it for one's own self-gratification or enjoyment, and it's like the guy that dies with the most toys or the most money has won the game. That's the game you want to play in, and I like that model, and that's why I went back and got an MBA. I wanted to see how much I could amass having my parents and grandparents left very, very little or left bills, as a matter of fact, in some cases. So it's like, how do you grow wealth? And there's nothing wrong with that. I like, still like that model, but I like the model of cooperation. That's working together, making decisions together that's good for the group, good for whatever community that you're in. And in the two and a half years we've been on, we've had different people come in and talk about how Three, five, ten people will come together and pool their resources in El Paso, Texas. The first month we were on in October celebrating Co-op Month, uh, Harriet May talked about a credit union that was worth a billion dollars, but it was started in the 30s or 40s. I don't remember exactly when, but it was started with five men putting up $5 each, and this is what cooperation can do. We had $25, and now the, the entity, the the, the credit union is worth over a billion dollars of assets, and they've done a lot to create housing in El Paso, Texas, for black and brown people, people that normally would not be able to own their own home. So this is the advantage of the cooperative is that people get together, learn how to work together through education. That's the fifth principle. The principle that first attracted me to co-ops was knowledge, information, training their fifth principle. And I find that in the cooperative world, that knowledge is given freely. It's not held back saying, with this knowledge I can advance and I'm not going to help my competitor. I'm not going to help the next guy down the street. But I find in the cooperative world, for the most part, I've been told on this program that sometimes that doesn't work as well. But in every instance that I've been and watched cooperators, they're sharing data. They're sharing the knowledge. And you know, when you take mostly adults, and you teach them. I taught mathematics for five years in my t- training, and, and you're teaching adults at its college level for the most part, and they're afraid of math. They're scared of it. And more often than not, you're teaching it in a vacuum like you're giving them data, but they don't know how to use it. But in the cooperative world, where you're teaching math, you're teaching the business statements, the financial statements, one plus one is still two, and all you're doing is adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, but they can use the data. It shows them a picture. It gives them information of how sound this business is or how how bad it's going, and, and when you're looking for future, whether or not you should make this decision or that decision. So the numbers, it becomes easier to teach the numbers when people can use that data. It becomes easier to talk about leadership and how you collectively make decisions, whether that's looking for the majority vote or a consensus vote, or everybody has to agree before we move forward. But learning how also major is that if you got two or more people, he said, you know, God said he'll be there too, but he also could have said there's going to be a disagreement. <laughs> you probably need God when you got two or more people in, in the midst. So there's going to be disagreement when you get more than one person, and you might even have disagreement within that one. 
So you got two or more people, you're going to have disagreement. It's just normal and natural because we're all different. So it's like, how do you work through the differentness? How do you how do you get some way of saying, I believe we should go left and you believe we should go right? How do we decide whether we go left or go right or go straight down the middle or go backwards? How do we get to that? And that's the training in the co-op world. Because you know you're going to be different. You know that things are going to be different. So how do you master the conflicts? How do you do it and make decisions that's good for the group? So when I started and got introduced to co-ops, it was because I managed housing co-ops. And I just fell in love with this education. I fell in love with watching people grapple with decisions. I mean, one case, uh, one of the board members wanted to put in new cabinets in this 57-unit co-op. Do we pay for it at our, our cash, or do we go borrow the money, or do we not do it? And they went through it, and they wrestled with about a six months to a year. It was a long time deliberating over this decision. And finally, the group decided not to do them. They let the individual homeowners do it. This is a market rate co-op, and it's inside of the housing co-op is the responsibility of the owner. So they discussed it with the members at a membership meeting and said, here's the decision, and here's why. That was phenomenal watching that happen. You know, it wasn't you're right, I'm wrong, this is good, this is bad. Uh, there wasn't all of the fighting back and forth that you could see sometimes in, when there's differences. It just wasn't, that didn't happen. It was great conversations with facts, get the facts, get the figures, get the information, and then wrestle it through, through good common sense, if you will. Although you know that common sense isn't necessarily common, but another subject for another time. Co-ops are people coming together to solve a community problem, working together to solve a community problem. And one person on the program said, if there's no community problem, there's no need for a co-op. And there's all types of co-ops. There's the worker co-op. That's when the employees own the business. Any business you can think of could be a worker co-op. And then there's a consumer co-op when the people that buy the products and services and they own the business. Credit unions are examples. Housing co-ops are examples. But whenever there's a, and I talk about this, Madison, Wisconsin, patient-centric. Policies and procedures are made up by the patients. The patients elect the board of directors. The board of directors hire the management and the doctors. And so everything, the policies and procedures are based on what's best for the patient. I told him I wanted to be in that center. I like that idea. Okay. So, we're going to get ready for our first break, but when we talked about Dennis Bowling in the ag business and Dennis Johnson was in the financial business, we're going to come back and talk about the different forms of co-ops in the ag business. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Fourteen fifty WOL. Information is power. That's why WOL is a great partner for this program because, if, as you recall, I said the fifth principle for, how, for cooperatives is information, training. That's not where the power comes from, though. You've got to have the information, the training, the education so you can have access to power. 
that power comes from using the information, from putting action to it, for energizing the information. If you get information and you don't use it, it's the same as, the same result as not having the information. To know and not do is the same as not knowing. So WOL is right that information is power, but you have to put action to the power. And this cooperative movement is about putting action, getting groups of people to come together and do things. It is in the doingness that you get the power, the power over your community, the power over your family, the power over the independence of, of self within a group. Awesome power. So we were talking about the different cooperatives. We talked about the worker cooperatives. That's a cooperative that's owned and controlled by the members. The employees are the members. The employees own the business and control the business, make the decisions, elect the board, decide how decisions are going to be made. Then it's a consumer cooperative. Then the people that use the products and services, then they are the ones that own and control the business. Then you have, particularly on farming, but sometimes uh, artists are using these too, is that you, you, will, you will get a group of farmers together to purchase what they need the raw products, if you will, the seed, the fertilizer, uh, irrigation, tractors, whatever is needed, they can come together and buy it together to get buy-in volume, and therefore they can get a better price normally. And also by buying together, they can become better educated as if they're out doing it or everything by themselves about what is good seed and what is best fertilizer and what is the best way to navigate and irrigate also they can share equipment like buying a big tractor that that will till the soil that they might be able to get one that they could not afford to buy on their own but as a group of them they could buy this and then share it so you get this front end uh purchasing co-op if you will and you find that artists can do the same thing they can come together and a lot of times the artists cannot get their own studio. But if they come together and pool their money, they may buy some warehouse space and everybody have their own their piece of this warehouse space to do their artist work. They might also buy supplies together and therefore by buying in volume, they can get a better, better price. So then you go on the other end, you can buy your products and services and you can learn how to do things together because you might be able to hire consultants or business folks that will come in and help you figure out how you do your your business better. And so they do it. They plant the seed, they water it, they weed, and then they harvest. Now you have to market it. So if they market things together, that's a marketing co-op. If they come together to market, then you will find out that they will uh, get go into different markets that it couldn't go into. They can have people just focus on the marketing where they couldn't do, the farmer couldn't do that. So if people focus on the market, they get them a better price for a better product. So you can get co-ops on both ends of it. And then the farmers that even came together and say, we're going to have value-added products. So then they get warehouse space and refrigeration space, and they might uh, mill the grain. So they sell the flour as opposed to selling the grain. They may roast the coffee. So they can do different things to add value to the products that they produce. And it's the same thing with the artists. 
they can then begin to sell together or have art shows together and and have a bigger venue for selling their products and perhaps get a better dollar because they're more astute about the business side of it or they have people helping them with the business side of it and then therefore they can get more money. Can you get a sense? I really love this co-op model. It, it, it is fascinating how people can come together with perhaps not a huge formal education, but when they pool their resources, both their, their knowledge about whatever it is that they're doing, whatever they, they're doing. And last week, we had a gentleman on that was talking about manufacturing cooperatives. He's out of Chicago, Mr. Dan Sweeney. And what was fascinating about that was they have started the education piece where they, they train young folks. This is mostly, matter of fact, only pictures I saw were African-American, male and female, and they train them. They started in high school, now they're going down to junior high school, to get people to have the attitude, the headset, that they can get the skills that they need to do the manufacturing, to run the machines, uh, uh, run the computers, and then they can also get leadership skills and guess what? They also teach them how to own what they can do and get them in a the mindset that they can own their own business, either by buying a business that they're working in when the owner decides that they want to retire and that they could buy it as a co-op, or they could go out and start their own business, perhaps with a group of them. So it's a whole new mindset. And he was saying that once some of us get older, it's awful hard to change the mindset because folks that are older, they have children, they have responsibilities, they have rent, they have car payments, they have gas and cell phone. And so they're more interested in the income, the the salary, not the focus of taking the risk of owning a business and perhaps making more money, but there's also the risk that you'll make less. And so too often somebody that's older and have children or responsibilities won't want to hear this thing about, hey, let's start this n- n- another business. Their their mindset is, I need to work for somebody so I can get a salary and that I can have food and a place that I can call home to raise my children. So they've gone back to junior high and high school folks to get them into this mindset because that's what I have found out in managing housing co-ops is getting people to change from being a tenant to an owner, that mindset. Once people make that change, the, and everybody in the co-op doesn't have to make the change, and more often than not, everybody does not. But if you get a significant amount, a mass of people that have made this change and they know that they are owners, when that happens, they take much better care of their property, okay? Much better care of their property. And what you find out is that there's a lot less uh, foreclosures. There's a lot less people getting evicted. They take better care, so the maintenance costs are less. And if it's a co-op, there's no profit motive. So over time, and there was a Wildwood uh, cooperative study, and Wildwood is a 200-something unit co-op in Atlanta, that the rent was $500 after being in existence for 35 years. The rent was $500 a month. And down the street, an apartment building was running $700 to $800 a month. Huge gap in this, okay? 200 to $300 difference. And I would argue with you that product, the housing for the co-op is better because it was taken better care of. And the co-op folks learn how to put money aside for future, for 
replacement of windows and roofs and stuff. So they get the savings going, and they know that they have to put the savings for the future. And uh, that's called stewardship. The first time it was talked about on this program, Jim Jones, who's with the National Student Housing Cooperative, would talk about most students that would come into a cooperative, a lot of it in the northern section, Michigan, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, some in New York, got some here in D.C., and and Stanford has some student co-ops out in California. So they're sparkled all over the U.S., none in historically black colleges, by the way. And what one, he told me, Jim Jones, that the students would come in, and they have four years at best in the student co-op, and they understood the value of saving money today for students that would come in tomorrow because somebody had done it for them, which gave them all of these benefits of working together and having a lower price, housing price on while they're on campus. So they saved money today for students in the future through replacement reserves and operating reserves, and they learned the value of saving. And because you get this cooperative where people are working together and they're saving for the future, their eyes on the future, they're talking about providing for today, but also the looking at the future, you get better decisions. You don't have all of these derivatives and, and all of these mortgages that came out for single-family homes that people on Wall Street made these different products so they can make money. It wasn't a best product for the people getting those these were not sort of, uh, I've got my eye on my members, the people that are making these mortgages. I want the best product for them. They didn't care about those people. They knew that when these interest rates went up after three, four, five years, that people were not going to be able to afford them. But they did them anyway. You didn't find that. You don't find that in credit unions. You don't find that in housing co-ops. They don't make those kinds of loans because they're future-oriented. So that's what happens with in the housing co-op. And in the in the credit unions, you get much better decisions. And Dennis Johnson was talking about that last night in these senior co-ops. You got 85, 90-year-old people making savings for the future, knowing that they may not be around. That money may not be for them, but it may be for future generations. This is one of the other reasons that causes me to love co-ops. When they work, they work extremely well. And most often, as we saw in the 2007 and 8 downturn in the housing markets, you didn't see all of these housing co-ops going under. Reason? They didn't make those kinds of loans. The group, there's a membership committee, and the membership committee meets with the new people, and they make the decision. So um, they would not let that happen, get much better results in co-ops, and that's why I love them, and we're going to take our second break. Please stay tuned, and we'll talk more about the dinner last night. Be right back. Fourteen fifty WOL. Welcome back, everybody. You know the National Co-op Bank sponsors this program to give you the benefits of co-ops. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. It makes it a mission-driven bank. It's not a bank whose mission is just to make money. You have to make money to stay in business. No problems with that. Applaud that. 
um, no matter if you're called a nonprofit or you're for profit business. If you don't have a surplus, at the end of the day, more money coming in and going out, you're going to fail. That's if you got more money going out and coming in, no matter what your mission is and so forth. So they have to have a positive income statement. But they are looking for ways of serving the economically challenged communities. And most brown and black communities that I know of are economically challenged. Racism, discrimination has done that. Series, years of it, and I call it systemic discrimination, is still in place, which makes it very hard for African-American or Latino get money to start business or even get the experience. One of the things with the Donald Trumps of the world don't really understand was their parents, his father gave him much more than money. He gave him much more. It's like contacts, relationships, bankers, general contractors. He knew how to put the deal together. That knowledge and that information, that education was much more valuable than the amount of money that he left him. And when I would teach, I taught at Howard in their business school, I taught marketing. I would say to students, I can, I can teach you the, the concepts. I can teach you the ideas. Like we can go out here. I, I always would try to get them to go get a, a business and do a marketing plan for a business so it's real. But I can't teach you how to look across the table from somebody and know that they can do what they say they're going to do and they're going to do what they say that they're going to do. And too often, and this is what uh, Dr. Jessica Nimhard talked about last night, was that she didn't want to talk about failure, that cooperatives failed, and a lot of the black cooperatives did fail. Uh, when she looked at the history, when I say failed, they did not survive, they did not succeed over time. And she said that a lot of times that was because of white supremacy. They would come in and sabotage the business. The whites didn't want blacks to have business. There's a whole nother uh, body of knowledge I'm beginning to study, and that is the profit off of poverty. Keep people in poverty. You can make money off of them, particularly through government programs. If you look at HUD and where they spend most of their money, that's what got me to thinking about this as we were looking at developing housing co-ops that HUD, most of HUD money goes to building apartments. And then the question was who owns apartments? Not us, not these economically challenged communities. It's more people that have money would create apartments and then they would make money off of Section 8 vouchers or other different HUD U.S. government tax dollars to help them to build or buy housing. And then they would make money off of the poor folks, sometimes providing good services, but more often than not, not providing good services or not fixing things when they broke and so forth. So if we got HUD to do co-ops, then the people that own it are the members, the people that are in there. And if there's money to be made, which a couple of studies showed there was money to be made, not as much as perhaps the investor-driven housing apartment buildings, but enough, much more than those residents could make out there in the market if they lived in an apartment. Most likely, they didn't make any money because they didn't have any money. They didn't have anything to make, and everything that they did make would go into their housing and for shelter and stuff. But having a limited equity 
co-op, which I didn't like them at first. When I first heard about this limited equity co-op, I'm going, that's white folks not wanting blacks and brown people to make money. But that's not the case. When you look at a limited equity co-op versus an apartment, they have an ability to make some money. But more importantly, they had the ability to learn had the ability to know what home ownership is alike, have ability to know the responsibilities of home ownership, which is one of the values of co-ops, the self-responsibility, the, the uh, self-help. What I like is that we, we come together and help ourselves to solve our problems. Democracy is another value. Equality, equity, solidarity. Those are values of co-ops. In the tradition of the founders of the cooperative movement, the members believe in the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. So when you look at the three folks that are in the race right now, Hillary, Bernie, the Donald, which one of those do you believe have the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others? That's the values of co-ops. The principles of voluntary and open membership. That was the second reason I liked co-ops when I started getting into them, understanding them. They didn't care what the gender is, what the social status, what race, what political organization, or religious. They didn't, they didn't care. There's no discrimination on that. Those are the co-ops that are working within the cooperative principles. Democratic member control is a second value, principle rather. Uh, co-ops is like one member, one vote. Members' economic participation, we've already talked about it, if there's profits or surplus, they get to share in that. Or even more important than that, they get to decide how those profits are divvied out. Do they keep them all in the business for growth? Do they keep some in the business and give out dividends? I mean, how do they, do they save them for future? Members' economic participation, something you pay in and something you get out. We have a food co-op right up here in Greenbelt. There's one, I believe, in Silver Springs. But that could either be a worker cooperative where the workers own it, the employees own it, or it could be a consumer cooperative where the people that buy the products and services of the food co-op own the business. And sometimes it's a combination of both. You may have 50% of the ownership by the employees and 50% by the members. And there's normally some fee, $5, $25, $100 to join. And then based on how much you spend in that co-op over the year, if there's dividends, you get a percentage of those dividends based on how much you spend. The fourth one is autonomy and independence. That's the control part. They have to own it and control it. The fifth is education, training, and information. We've already talked about that one. That knowledge is so crucial for power. Cooperation among cooperatives is the sixth. That's work, people working together, different co-ops, the credit unions working with the housing co-ops, the housing co-ops working with the food co-ops, in Madison, Wisconsin, where there is this uh, patient-based owned, this consumer co-op, maybe the housing people will go there for their, or the credit union people will go there for their health care. And the seventh one is concern for the community. There's no need necessarily to have a social responsibility uh, department in a, in, a, in a cooperative, although there's some that does and make sure that it is focused on the community and concern for the environment and concern for the cleanliness of the neighborhood and so forth. Just concern for the community and how they can best help the community. Uh, these are the seven principles and the values of co-ops. I don't see how anybody could not love them except that you don't want to work. You have to want to work. 
And you have to come over. Some people have the difficulty in learning because I just told my, my grandson, he was saying that learn, this is so hard. This is so hard. This is so hard. And I told him, you know, things are hard when you, when you're learning new concepts and new ideas, but once you learn them, they become easy. You know, if you learn something in the fourth grade, when you get to the sixth grade, you go back and say, that's, that's easy. And you just do it. But it's a new data that is hard. And it's only hard because you don't know it. Same thing when you're an adult. You're getting new ideas, new attitudes. And you have to be able to want to be able to confront that, that, that fear, that anxiety. Sometimes um, shyness or not wanting to be seen as not knowing. Yeah, throw all of it out the window, throw it all out the window and just go learn. And you get, you find out that people are there to help you learn people that have already learned it. Ruthie Wilder has been on the show a couple of times. She's from Baltimore. She's the president of a housing co-ops in Baltimore and she's retired now, but she was, uh, worked for the transit system, like the Metro here. And I think she ran those trains up there. So not a lot of formal education, but she learned a lot. She said she took that knowledge she was learning about how to manage a co-op and apply that to her personal life. Also, you'll find out that when you when people in a co-op learn about democracy and voting, they get more involved in the local elections and in the presidential elections and sometimes run for school board or city councils or uh, had a gentleman on the program that was talking. He was a state assemblyman in New York. So you, you, you learn the value of working together in both in a cooperative in the business and also in the political system. So you get more people out there to vote when they understand the importance of voting. And I got to tell you, we'll come out to vote for a president. But I read a book called Cities Building Community Wealth. It was uh, written by Democracy Collaborative. They're right here in Maryland. They wrote this book, and they're associated with the University of Maryland, at least some of the people in the Democracy Collaborative. And Dr. Jessica Nimhard, who got inducted into the Hall of Fame, was one of the founders of this organization. They wrote a book on cities that are building wealth. And inclusion was one of the things, just like the first principle, Volunteer and open membership. Everybody is open to be involved in these 20 cities that they talked about. So I have come to know in reading this book, I've gotten there before, but it really knocked it home that these general elections, because they said that one of the keys was a progressive leader. This progressive leader was uh, a mayor, perhaps. It could be council members. It could be somebody in the economic development centers, okay, that you have to have some kind of progressive leadership to help out and entrepreneurship for me is the worker cooperative to get more and more people involved in this ownership piece. So this is a really nice piece. You can go on Democracy Collaborative. I believe it's democracycollaborative.coop. And in our next break, I'll look that up so I can tell you that you can get it. don't have to pay for it. But it's a really nice read of what they call the seven drivers to community wealth building. And where you get people, everyday people in the community, female, male, 
black, white, it just doesn't make any difference. Old, young, come together, create businesses. Sometimes it would be taking the access, excess land or the um, land that is not being used, and that's why you need a government help and so forth to put this aside for these different businesses, or maybe it could be farming, even urban farming. So you get people together to create businesses to solve their problems. And one problem is could be unemployment or not having really great skilled jobs. The gentleman, Mr. Dan Sweeney that was on, said that there's 600,000 manufacturing jobs in the U.S. that are not filled because people do not have the skill sets, and they pay $75,000 a year. Great job. Great job for young people. Great job for old people. $75,000 a year for one person. We're going to take our next break. In our final break for today, we'll come back and talk more about the Hall of Fame gala from last evening and how exciting it was to be there and listen to these stories and all this wonderful contribution these human beings have made collectively. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. You know, National Co-op Bank, as I've said to you, has sponsored us and have been a great, great partner. Their customers are cooperatives, such as grocery wholesale cooperatives. We've talked about purchasing cooperatives or housing cooperatives. They could be marketing cooperatives. They could be farming. They could be manufacturing. Other co- uh, customers share in the spirit of cooperation driven by democratic organizing principles. They may be Alaskan or Native American enterprises, which by their very nature are member-run and member-owned. You know, the, the whole host of customers that National Co-op Bank helps to support, they also could be community health centers or charter schools driven entirely by community needs. What they all have in common is a single fundamental principle that they have joined together cooperatively to meet personal, social, and our business needs. There's got to be a need, an economic need, and then people come together, form a group to solve those particular problems or satisfy that particular need. And Dr. Nimhard last night was so nice and humble. She's just given us a body of knowledge in her research over 15 years of doing this research. The book is called Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. You know, um, 15 years of, of this study. And she is a political economist specializing in community economic development, economic development within communities, wealth inequality. Gosh. You know, we've talked on this program about the billionaires, the one percenters. You know, they click off 60% of all new wealth. So all new wealth created in, in 15 and 2015 of the economy got it. I think it's more like 57% of new wealth they got. And then they pay a a, a lower percentage taxes. They don't pay their, what I call, fair share. There was some talk when Mitt Romney ran and compared the percentage that he paid compared to his secretary. Uh, Black political economy, popular economic literacy is what she also writes about and talks about. But community justice or community injustice. Her research has focused on community and asset-based economic development, 
democratic community economics. Dan Sweeney had a, a video, and a young man was talking about how young black men, this young black man talking, if they can get out and make 75000 a year, there's no need to go out and sell drugs or no need to go out and steal from somebody. That when there's, there's fairness in the economy or you've got good jobs, all of these other things that young black people, male and female, young, old, don't have to do because they can make a living. It isn't that folks want to go out and steal or go out and sell drugs. And we all know that if a black gets caught doing something, they're going to pay a higher price. Our, our system of justice or injustice, if you will, will cause that a black person with the same crime will pay a lot heavier price. You know, it, it totally in no justice there, particularly when folks are making money off of the poor, that people 60% are below. Baba talks about... Um, the new master, the new slave master, is the person that loans out the money. That banker, that financier, that guy that's easy credit or easy payment or easy loans. Uh, they make it easy for you to come in and do a loan. And therefore, if you look at the fine print, but more often than not, folks have a, a huge need that they have to do to pay their mortgage to keep from getting out or they want to buy a new flat screen TV or there's some emotional to it and they don't even read the fine print. Fine print says if you're late, we're going to stick on $50. You know, first month, $100 the second month or some huge penalties if you don't pay and pay on time. And then you may be paying 12, 15, 21, 25% interest. They become the slave masters. You get hooked in that, and they try to get you hooked in it on an early, early age. You go on college campus to get folks to get you your hooks in you. So it makes it not only do you have the loans from the student loans, but you have loans and credit card loans from from all of this, all of this sort of sometimes buying things that you don't really need. Too often buying things that you don't need: vacations, cars, or a bigger car than you need, or uh, flat screen, 60-inch flat screen, and you don't need on it. The one you have already works perfectly and so forth. So it gets your hooks in you, and then they become your slave master now. They get the majority of, of your money. So she reads about this. She researched about all of this, and then she talks about it. And it was interesting. She was sitting between two white men that were on, and some of the questions that they talked about, at a uh, forum yesterday afternoon about 4 o'clock, and she was able to say with such clarity that how a lot of black co-ops, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they were just sabotaged by white supremacists who didn't want to see blacks succeed. Everybody wasn't that way. There were co-ops around helping each other in this sixth principle cooperation among co-ops, you see a lot of that at the Federation of Southern Co-ops, which came out of the uh, civil rights movement. Helping the black farmer save his land. You know, um, we were promised 40 acres in a mule. Most of us didn't get it, if anybody got it. But there are a lot of blacks that were able to buy land, keep the land, and then the land is what produces, whether it's fruits and vegetables, whether it is timber, 
it produces or out of the land comes the coal, out of the land comes bauxite, out of the land comes all of these different materials that make brick, mortar, all diamonds come out of the land. Everything, the land produces most of what we have. So land is very, very important. And then the Federation of Southern Co-ops, that's their number one role is retention of the land. There's been total injustice throughout our system in America. Total injustice. And Dr. Gordon Emhart has written books that sort of talks about that, particularly in the cooperative world. But there's also in the cooperative world, a gentleman by the name of Roger Wilcox, who's 95, did his first co-op in the 40s, and they wanted to bring blacks in, and the FDA would not loan them money for blacks. The government was perpetuated to racism also. So they never got an FDA loan, even to today. They wanted a, 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 a community that represented America. Blacks and white and Asians, and all are in that community today in Connecticut. And was there since 1944, 1945. So there are co-ops around that have been around that have this first principle. Just doesn't make any difference about where you come from and your background. If you'll come in and work, if you'll come in and read the bylaws and read the house rules and know what it is, your responsibilities, and then you do what it is that is your responsibility. And that's volunteering, that's coming to meetings, that's understanding, that's getting information, that's making informed decisions, that's participation. And in Greenbelt is a 1,600-unit co-op created in the 30s and the 40s. They interview people to see if they had this kind of makeup. Some people don't. Some people don't want to be joined. Some people want to be lonely. Some people want to be on their own. But if you want to come in and be within a group, and that's what the research is saying about seniors around why senior co-ops are so so very important for longevity and better quality of life because they get to interact where a senior, a couple, as they get older and empty nesters, then they might um, find themselves by themselves in a home, okay, and not interacting. And then they literally wither up and die. Then if the one of the spouses dies first, normally it's the man, then the woman is by herself, wither up and die. So co-ops gives them a way of coming in, getting on committees, beautification committee, building committee, social committee, all of these different committees, and you get people working, and that brings in life, okay? That brings in enthusiasm. That brings in joy so that people live a longer, better quality of life living in co-ops, particularly as seniors than they would living in individual homes. Dr. Gordon Nimhard, professor of community justice and social economic development at John Jay College. Dennis Bowling, uh, retired CEO from United Producers, Inc. And Dennis Johnson, who's the former president and CEO of the St. Paul Bank for Cooperatives. And he also helped to start a homestead housing cooperative in the 1990s. And that's where you got your senior co-ops. They were inducted last night into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. Fascinating evening, fascinating day. They had a panel discussion earlier and a panel discussion with with these three people and then a dinner last night where they were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Wonderful seeing the life accomplishments 
And remember, everybody that's been on this show, when I ask them, do they like what they do, they automatically say, yes. Can't you tell? I love it. I have to break my way from work to be with family because we love what we do in helping people, caring for each other, caring for people. This is what makes co-ops wonderful. We invite you to look for the co-ops, look for housing co-ops, credit unions, and food co-ops in your neighborhood, taxi co-ops, and then maybe join them as a member or use buy the products and service. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful week. We'll be back with Everything Cooperative. I'm Vernon Oaks. Pat Thornton is the producer, and NCB is our sponsor. Thank you very much. Have a great day. 1450 WOL.